The 2020 Montgomery County Board of Education race is perhaps the most important local election on the ballot this year in Maryland's largest jurisdiction. My name is Ryan Miner. I am the host of a Minor Detail podcast. Over the next few weeks, I will be interviewing the Montgomery County Board of Education candidates to learn where they stand on key issues that will inevitably decide the future of our local education system. Today, I'm talking with Lynn Harris, an at-large Board of Education candidate from Silver Spring. Here's what we discussed. Quit working at the Justice Department to go back to school, to Johns Hopkins School of Public Health. I wanted to get back into a bigger area of medicine perhaps very relevant right now, population health, and uh, I had particular interest in disease prevention and control. Wow, it's a big issue right now right with now. the coronavirus. That's right. And you can use your your background and experience, of course, to be a resource to the Board of Education and MCPS to to give people the right insight to, to guide us through I, what I think is a public health crisis in globally now. Oh, I agree. I And one of the things that I... Uh, have been a little concerned about over the years is that MCPS is mostly populated, I guess, understandably, by educators, people mm-hmm. who are educators and school administrators by training. But we have some areas of our work that really requires niche areas of expertise. And I think public health is an area we really need some people with public health bona fides working in our school system because, I mean, right now we're embroiled in um, an epidemic right. of concern. So how to manage a medical emergency or a medical um, time of crisis or possible epidemic or just the preparedness that goes along with not getting to a place where we have the kinds of issues that they have in some other countries. But... Also, we have an epidemic of suicide in young people. We have the American Academy of Pediatrics tells us that adverse childhood experiences is a national public health crisis. Um, Mental wellness issues, depression, anxiety among K-12, even even K-12 age youth in in the United States is, is growing exponentially. And those are all the types of issues that do require, I think, a true public health mindset and focus. And we don't really have that too much in the school system. And I think it's, I think we could use that. Oh, that's a, that's a, that's a big issue. You live in Silver Spring and right now you, you're a teacher. I am. I teach now. I'm in my fourth year of teaching in MCPS. I teach medical science with clinical applications at Thomas Edison. Wow. And how's that going? <laughs> well, it's going fine. Um, our students, we spend the entire second semester of the school year in clinicals. Mm-hmm. The students have a mandatory 40 hours of long-term and rehab care experience they have to get under their belt uh, before they can take their state CNA exam. That's a Maryland Board of Nursing requirement. And generally speaking, when things go well, we get to that 40-hour marker uh, at about the end of the third marking period. So then um, after the students take their state exam, we then move on to a clinical experience at Walter Reed, which is where they, having already having a license under their belt, really experience everything that's going on in the world in medicine. 
and it's a great experience for the students too, and a unique experience. There are no other high school students that get that clinical experience at Walter Reed, only the Thomas Edison students. You have an div- incredibly diverse career. You have done so much uh, throughout your life, and uh, I'm. it fascinates me about the public health side. And as I was telling you off camera and offline that I, I work for a home care agency as a business development specialist in Montgomery County, we work in assisted living communities. Yeah. We work in skilled nursing facilities and CCRCs. We have a lot of hands-on with the senior population. That's we, we serve. That's most of our our business. That's most of our clients who tap in and utilize our services. I think that connecting MCPS students to our senior population and bridging that gap it's so important. And uh, I'm I'm glad to hear that you encourage uh, your students to. To, to, to have that hands-on connection. Um, that's so important. And, um, you know, my gr- I'm, I'm so fortunate. I saw my grandparents at 94 and 87 and 79, respectively. And what I've learned more from them than maybe sometimes I've learned in a classroom, not to say that I haven't learned, but uh, it, it, it's a great opportunity. It's a great experience. It is. And I think one of the most rewarding aspects of having our students in the clinical experience for me and my teaching partner is seeing the way the students connect yeah. with the um, the residents in the long-term care facilities that we're in. And, how m- and we tell the students before they start, the residents are going to love you. Yeah. You're young. You are energetic. You bring a f- kind of a fresh just energy into the setting. And the students will give us that teenage (laughs) that's what we give our kids and then but they get there and then they they really get it and they all develop their favorite residents and that they like to check in on even if they're you know they're moved from unit to unit um so they can get a variety of experiences and they'll go and check back on their favorite residents and and develop relationships with them and tell stories and the students will tell stories and the residents will tell stories and they really come away um, appreciating that population and the importance of the work that they're doing there and it's a great experience for them. Lynn I have a number of questions for you and as the podcast I'm hoping that you are able to delve in in a more detailed way than the forums. We've all been to candidate forums, and there's so many of you. Yeah. And I remember the county council forums back in 2018. Well, there was 33 at-large candidates running. I think that's right. It's hard to get in right. a word. It's hard to tell people who you are, what you stand for, what you hope to accomplish, and how you want to get it done in four years when there's 33 people on stage. And that's the goal of these interviews. So I want to I want to talk to you tonight about policy. There have been numerous studies and surveys that have shown inequities between the schools based on poverty rates. And some of those inequities include opportunities based on the income of school parents and higher poverty and schools having less after-school enrichment programs, as well as arts programming, which which is, of course, vitally important. And some are because of the greater demands of meeting more needs in the classroom, like higher teacher turnover or higher percentage of first-year teachers. How would you address these inequities? Well, I think you hit one of the major issues on the head. It's simply fact that 
students in our highest impacted schools are in classrooms with our least experienced educators. And there's a role for youth and fresh energy in our classrooms, absolutely. But I know how hard it is to be a first-year teacher. And I was a first-year teacher in my mid-50s with several other careers under my belt. I can only imagine how hard it is to be a first-year teacher when you're young and when the pressure to be on all the time in the classroom. One of the things that surprised me about teaching is the very unique way I'm exhausted at Mm. the end of a teaching day. And it's not a physical exhaustion. I think it's sort of an intellectual and emotional exhaustion because you are on all the time, engaging with your students, trying to connect with them, keeping an eye on how every minute of every instructional period is going, being prepared to switch gears on a dime. If you can really see you're losing their attention, they're losing focus, they're losing interest, Um, being able to be nimble in the classroom when um, there are unique and different things that students are bringing to your classroom that you can tap into that will enrich everybody in the classroom. But that's also taking you off script, if you know what I mean. Sure. So it, and it's just, it is, it is hard. And I, I understand why we are seeing data that shows us that most, a significant percentage of teachers leave the profession within five years. And I think we need to get to a place where we are attracting a diverse population of strong, young, energetic educators. We're retaining them for the long term, and we're supporting them in ways that allow them to develop as teachers before they're exhausted as teachers and thinking, I'm going to go do something else. And so getting... so. Finding a way to attract and retain, and we need diverse teachers and getting the really experienced educators in front of our most challenged students. And also, we need our more experienced administrators in those settings as well. Because in any school, the array of issues and challenges that your students bring in the door any given day is unpredictable. Mm -hmm. And being an administrator is very, very hard too. And the bureaucratic aspects of being an administrator and the system-wide expectations of administrators are daunting. And then, but having to address the day-to-day challenges of your school requires the ability to compartmentalize, prioritize, and respond, to direct your resources, and also keep that face that is always welcoming to the public too. Yeah. Anybody that comes into your school. And that takes skill and practice and experience and those things I think are really essential to serve our most struggling students and I think that would be one of my first priorities that would be I think a major priority to get those more experienced educators in front of our challenging our challenged students also 
bringing in really good supports like the PPWs and PCCs, our parent community coordinators, I think play a vital role in many of our school communities in supporting students who struggle in all manner of ways. So if you have a student who has special needs, but parents that don't really understand what that means and don't understand how to approach the school system to get their their student the supports that they need, that PCC can bridge that gap. But if you don't have one, then there's, you know, that student's going to struggle and the parents aren't going to know how to support them. In case people are unfamiliar with the acronym PPC, what does that mean? So PCCs are, are parent community coordinators, and um, they are individuals with a wide range of backgrounds, but MCPS has grown the number of PCCs in in the system and try to match PCCs um, skills and talents with the unique populations in the schools that they serve. So that could be um, prior experience, that could be language skills, uh, that could be their experience of having kids in our system so that they can sort of share their own personal experiences. And then we have PPWs, which are the pupil personnel workers who are, um, generally speaking, former educators in the system who have the that uh, substantial knowledge of the system and how it works and how things go in the classroom Mm -hmm. and um together um they you know each of those plays a role in helping to support our students um we are just getting to the point where we're having i'm not going to say adequate i don't think we do have adequate numbers Mm -hmm. of particularly pccs but we're getting better at, at providing that resource in our schools, and certainly in our schools with um, students living significant numbers of students living in poverty, that that PCC is is critical. Len, I want to understand what three things that you would change about Montgomery County Public Schools, and what are things the, the three things that you think are working well now, and that you would keep. I would. It could be it, it could be more than three, but it's uh, we'll limit it to that. I would change the the way the school system transparently shares information and data, first of all, because I, I strongly believe that everybody needs to see and understand the same information at the same time if we are going to understand how we're doing as a system and make the best decisions we can about how to do better as a system. Mm-hmm. Tied into that is... MCPS needs to be more willing, intentionally willing, to view every one of our discrete groups of stakeholders, for lack of a better word, as valuable partners who bring real wisdom that we need as a system to make good decisions. Students, staff, teachers, families and community members. Each one of those groups knows things about our schools and our school system that the others don't. Leave one of them out, leave all of them out, leave some of them out. You don't have the information you need to fully understand our issues, our challenges, our priorities, and to make the best possible decisions we can with the resources we have. And the third thing I would like to see the system do better is just consistency across all schools, at all levels, consistency of programs, consistency 
of opportunity, fidelity of implementation of programs, universal excellence of programs, and a universal way that we communicate, a universally excellent way that we communicate with our school communities about everything. Crisis communication, we're there right now. We are. Um, but simple messages around opportunities for students, programs of interest. I'm you know, acutely aware that across the county, information about what I do at Edison and about all of our programs at Edison is not equally universally shared or perhaps prioritized in different schools. And, you know, information like that should be, if you, for instance, have four different students in four different schools, as lots of parents and families do, you should have a basic expectation that is continuously fulfilled about how your school is going to communicate with you. So this similar incident happens at each one of your children's schools. The response should be the same. It mm -hmm. should be good. It should be thorough. It should be timely. It should give you the information that you need in a format in which you can access it and understand it. And you shouldn't hear really good, clear information from school A, little to no information from school B, partial and slightly confusing information from school C, but we don't implement that sort of thing with fidelity across the system. And that lack of consistency causes mistrust. Do you think that the communication issues, does it begin with the MCPS administration or is it school to school to school or is there more of a, a universal approach to getting people on board about how to share information or do we have to do it piecemeal school by school? I think the communication challenges get to one of the issues that I've seen in my kind of 10 years of advocating in the school system. Are we 208 fiefdoms hmm. or are we a system? I understand MCPS's reasoning for providing school-to-school -school autonomy mm -hmm. with administration. Every single one of our schools is different from every other one of our schools. And every single one of our schools is different from itself year to year. It's the nature of what we do. There's a constant inflow and outflow of students, teachers, family, we're a school system. People right. move in, through, and out. But, <clears throat> excuse me. So yes, the, the administration of a school does need to be able to adapt what it does and how it does it to the unique population of a school in a given year, a cookie-cutter approach won't work in a system as large and diverse as ours. However, there are certain things that should be, should be the same in every school, and the way we communicate, I think, is one of them. The consistency and clarity and transparency with which we communicate should be the same school to school. The way we communicate in a crisis, the way we share common information Every high school should share information in a similar way about the PSAT hmm. for sophomores and juniors. Yeah. Just this year, in the fall, in MCCPTA, which is an organization that I was very involved with for many years, we were hearing concern from lots of different communities about the way individual schools were or weren't promoting that opportunity, were or won't, weren't were or won't 
prioritizing that opportunity, were or won't supporting students in being able to access that opportunity. And I thought, they're all high schools. It's the PSAT. It's not different. Where it doesn't depend on where you live in the county, what the PSAT looks like. Why aren't we doing this the same in all of our 25 high schools? One of the things that affects me routinely as a teacher at Edison is the way our 25 high schools have autonomy around scheduling standardized testing, have autonomy around certain, most of my students are seniors, so certain end of the year activities that impact seniors, senior day, um, certain senior activities that students have to participate in leading up to the time of graduation. And those are common to every one of our high schools. Every one of our high schools has to have a testing schedule for, you know, the the standardized testing. And it's all at the same time of year, but 25 different schedules throws what I do into disarray. When it's, it's that information not shared with us in advance, we can't plan instruction when we don't know day to day or week to week how many students are going to be out. They don't get to opt out of the testing. They, if their school says, okay, sophomores and juniors, you're t- testing on these days and all the rest of you are moving to a modified block schedule. So if you go to Edison, you're not going. <laughs> but we don't get that information in advance. Right. And especially in a curriculum in, that moves as at at as fast a pace as mine does, the, that erratic absence just is really difficult. And that type of thing should be standard. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Lynn, I want to throw you a side question, maybe a curveball. You've been endorsed by some of the political heavy hitters in Montgomery County so far. And I think it's fair to say that the Democratic progressive establishment in Montgomery County, including County Executive Mark Elric and some of the down county activists, they're, they're backing your candidacy. You've received endorsements from a number of uh, from a number of progressives, and I think it's fair to say that some parents have expressed concern about that, um, and they want to know that you're going to be an independent voice on the board of education that you can equi- equitably represent all facets of this county, all communities, um, and I think people are rejecting the idea of candidates that would be beholden to, let's say, Democratic politicians or specifically maybe a te- the teachers union, um, they want to know that you're going to reject machine politics and do what's best for all students. Can, can we count on you to be an independent thinker and voice on the Montgomery County Board of Education? Yes. And I think anybody that has known me or worked with me in the advocacy trenches, especially in MCCPTA for the past eight years, knows that I am somebody who deeply, deeply believes in every single one of our students. And I am somebody who thinks about issues very deeply and who seeks to understand all points of view but not sacrifice my judgment to any particular opinion. I think that... I have, if you talk with people who've worked with me, I believe that they will universally tell you whether they agreed with me on an issue or not, that I was thoughtful, that I was constructive, that I was reliable, and that 
I was a somebody who works very well with people agree, disagree, share a perspective, don't share a perspective. But to me, that basic ability to connect, understand, digest, under, and drill down on issues and do it in a way that's civil and respectful, that I think is the way that I do business. I think the people that have endorsed me have endorsed me because they've seen me work. Um, one of the things that I think led to my decision to run for the Board of Education, which is something I never really thought I would do, <laughs> is getting to a place where I came to know that I really understand the school system in a way that many others don't just because of the fact I've been working mm-hmm. in it and with it and through it for a long time on a huge array of issues working you know in Annapolis at the county council with the board of education with organizations um, all manner of different issues I don't claim to know everything about everything because I don't I think one of my other strengths is I I don't pretend to know things that I don't know and I'm very very willing to learn from other people that I know know more than I do well that's that's good I think people definitely in a nonpartisan election they're looking for independent thinkers they're looking for for candidates who can come to a decision based on data and facts Mm -hmm. and looking at every decision objectively and I think that's uh, that's so important, not just at a board of education level, but at a national level. We'd be a much better political system if we didn't rely on partisan ideology, but rather a uh, an independent thought process. I know that I would appreciate that. Uh, Lynn, some of the board of education candidates have talked about bringing financial, more financial responsibility to MCPS, but most of our spending, as you know, is teacher-based. Mm-hmm. This is There's not much wiggle room in our budget, as you know. And let me ask you this. What would you cut? What might be successful in this effort? And is there anything that should be added? And how would we pay for it? Are we talking operating or capital? Let's talk about both. I mean, well, let's start with our operating budget. Okay. I think that... One of the things, so one of the things I think we should be doing much better than we do is being utterly transparent in that budget. Mm-hmm. You think they're they're lacking transparency in some respects? I think they are providing a great deal of information in a way that's not necessarily easy to access. Maybe break it down better for parents and students yeah. and whoever's read. I mean, look, taxpayers, they're shareholders into this process, so... I agree with you because, look, when we we get information and we know that working parents can't always make Board of Education meetings as much as we would like to, consuming and digesting this information, even for someone at a (laughs) in business school who understands operating budgets, it's it's a challenge. It is. And and a picture's worth a thousand words. Right. We have an incredibly diverse community. Sure. You give a good visual. It doesn't matter what language you speak. Mm-hmm. You know, you have a couple key terms translated into the variety of languages that our very diverse population speaks, but everybody understands that image. And there's great 
there are great programs and software out there that allow you to truly visualize a budget and even understand it in real time. You know, where are we at this point in the fiscal? How are we doing in each of our categories of spending? Are we under? Are we over? How is our spending tracking to performance and outcomes? That exists. Why aren't we using that? How do you build trust? You just put it all out there in a way that people can see it and understand it. And I think that that is one thing that we should do in real time. As far as where we can cut, I, it, you know, it's it's tough when you look at, in Maryland, where our funding formulas and everything I'm hearing on Blueprint, I don't see it, our, our kind of formula-based spending changing. So we're looking at a foundation amount per pupil. We're per pupil spending. Right. So if you look at the reason all of our education budget increases year to year regardless is because the number of students in our system increases so we're at that foundation level of spending that is pupil-based and then we're adding in for students who have special needs need language supports living in poverty and so we're adding in those bits and that does hamstring us a bit with the way we spend because that's also legislated we are you know we have maintenance of effort that's where we are right and people who are unfamiliar with maintenance of effort you you can't go below that every minute you have to meet it it's a state mandate that you have to meet that in some some school districts find that to be challenging but uh you 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 can't go below your maintenance of effort that's set so when they're looking to 2021, you have to meet it or you go above it. Right. And we did. Um, some of your listeners that are education dorks like me may remember <laughs> that I think it was in 2012. We did re- we did rebase. So we didn't. Mm-hmm. the school system did not meet maintenance of effort. And they went through the process to actually lower our per-pupil spending as our base moving forward from that point. Um, that was in the heart of the recession. And I think our per-pupil spending just in the last year, I might get that wrong, has just now returned to where it was in FY mm-hmm. 2009. Um, and, you know, cutting, there are certain areas that I think have to be sacrosanct in our budget. And that is in providing classroom-based supports that are required to let every student access their learning every day. So if you have a student that is, um, you know, needs supports to to achieve grade level reading or grade level math skills, I mean, those are things that we have to continue to do. I think one of the areas that I would say is also sacrosanct are the arts. Because I think that the arts allow our students to access the world in in ways that tap into their individuality. And for a lot of our students, the arts programming is what gets them in the school door every day. That's right. And another, when I was a kid in Washington County Public Schools, we, you know, the first programs, sadly, that always were on the chopping block was the arts program. I was a musician. I played the saxophone, was in the school band. We were always trying to come up with ways to fund this. And music education in, pub, in, in elementary school, it was they were always looking to cut that back, and I thought that that was a devastating blow to how young students in elementary school how their brain functions. It's, it's pivotal. It's pivotal. You have to you have to consider that, and um, I I'm with you on that one. Yeah, that's a, that's I'm, I'm 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 with you very much so on that one. 
if you look at almost every person that we would consider a genius, <laughs> they had an arts outlet. They, yeah. they played an instrument. They painted. They danced. They I mean, the arts are incredibly important, I think, to certain areas of our cognitive functioning. Sure. And it's left brain, right, right brain. And the way our young brains develop. That's right. And I think it's a mistake to look at that as something that we can consider optional. Are you musical? I am not. <laughs> but I, I appreciate those who are. Yeah. I, I learned to. I learned to read music when I was five or six years old, and luckily because of the arts programs that were afforded to me, and that was an invaluable experience. In fact, my my first I, my first year of college at Duquesne University, and I'm I'm repping this well here. Uh, I was a music education major. I was going to be a teacher, and I decided after about a year, I thought, well, you know, I I, I love music education, but. It was in the middle of the the 2004 election. And I said, I think I'm going to be a political science major and change the world. And uh, there's some days where I wish I could go back and be a teacher in in school. So, uh, yeah. But, you know, Lynn, I I think parents are wondering about their candidates, what it is that you've done in your child or your children's schools, what volunteer positions you've held in the school system, and how did you learn from those experiences? And, uh, how you can use those experiences to shape your, if you're elected to the Board of Education, how you can use those to impact that. What are what are some of your volunteer uh, positions inside of the, the schools for your kids? Well, I got to tell you, the reason I understand the school system as well as I do is because of the volunteer time that I've spent sure. in it. So when my son started kindergarten at Highland View Elementary, mm. give it a shout out, um, I did what you do, right? Volunteer. I went to the first PTA meeting. <laughs> And, you know, I, they asked for a volunteer to do something. I raised my hand, you know, kiss of death and PTA, you know, and that started, I spent, you know, two years as the health and wellness coordinator at my son's elementary school. Then I was president of the PTA for two years. Then I was membership coordinator for two years. When he moved on to middle school at Sims, um, at the request of my good friend, Heather Souter, who was then the PTSA president. I took on the role of parent representative on the ILT, the instructional leadership team at Sims. And I was very fortunate in that the administration at Sims, first John Haas was the principal for one year, and then Karen Bryant, who's a superstar in MCPS, by the way, was a prin- uh, came in when Thomas was in seventh grade. And they viewed the parent on the instructional leadership team as not somebody to sit in the back of the room quietly and observe show up maybe once in a while but as an essential as a part of the team and so I sat right there at the table and we we talked about all aspects of school performance we examined data we asked questions we decided on our schools you know you know school improvement plan and all of that, they really engaged me in those conversations. And, you know, I, I was not a teacher at this point. And some, the first couple of meetings I was at, and this was, we met weekly. And then for a summer, a week in the summer. And I did not know what they were talking about half the time. And I would sit next to Carlo Bianchini, who's the PE teacher. And every five minutes or so, I would just whisper him, <laughs> what are they talking about? And he would explain the acronyms to me and help me understand and so I learned a lot about 
our school and how schools run from that experience. And then I, the, my I was a president of the PTA at Sims for mm-hmm. one year. And throughout that time, I also became involved in Montgomery County Council of PTAs, MCC PTA. Mm-hmm. When I became pre- president of the elementary school PTA, when my son was in second grade, I first got to really know about the organization. And so I started to go to the monthly delegate assemblies. Again, we were asking for a volunteer for something. I raised my hand. And so I got involved first uh, on what they then called the legislative committee. I chaired the legislative committee for a year. And through that role, I served on the Maryland PTA legislative committee, um, sort of during session on an ongoing basis, monitoring bills that were moving through um, for education impact, deciding what we were going to speak to, what we weren't. And I then served a year as the vice president for educational issues. And I will say I was very bad at that job, <laughs> especially when you look at other superstars who held that role, Shirley Brandman, hmm. Lori Halverson, uh, Michelle Glick, Cynthia Simonson, and now our latest is Rodney Peel, all extraordinarily talented at, at that role and deeply interested in the in, issues of curriculum and those sorts of things and then I did three years as VP of advocacy and that I think was uniquely suited to my talents Mm -hmm. my passion for making sure people can find their voice and know how to use their voice and to speak to the issues they care about um, making sure they had all the tools they needed to do that when it was most strategically important helping parents and students and teachers understand that it was both easier than they thought and more important than they thought to speak um, and helping our organization stay focused on really important issues and following the process through so that we could t- truly help to enact change. And then I, um, I served as president of the organization for three years. And as president, I think I take pride in the fact that we really broadened the breadth and depth of our work. And we branched out to do more and deeper work on school climate and safety, on mental wellness, on supporting our LGBTQ students, um, on pedestrian safety and on issues of, you know, crisis communication and working and building relationships with the school system to really infuse them, the decisions that they were making and the actions they were taking with the impacts they were having in our individual schools and in our individual school communities and really pressing them to do better at some of the things that weren't serving our school communities well. And all of that arc um, kind of brought me to where I am today, but it was through that work that I really did learn this school system and come to love it in all of its various iterations and with all of its warts. Yeah. Let's talk about an issue that has been on the minds of many parents and teachers, the the boundary analysis. Mm-hmm. You've indicated on your website that you support the ongoing MCPS boundary analysis, and it's certainly been a controversial subject. And I want to give a shout out as uh, as a journalist to uh, to Caitlin over at the Bethesda Beat. Oh. Uh, she's a tremendous journalist, and I think she's covering um, a lot of these rapid fire school issues with a lot of integrity. And that's really where you should be going to to get your news on education locally. Totally agree. Yeah, Caitlin Peets has just been a outstanding reporter on these issues. Len, would you support altering contiguous boundaries? And would there be any situations where you would support changing non-contiguous boundaries? And would you support the con and do you support the concept of the so-called neighborhood schools? 
I think as a system, we have to change our boundaries. We have not looked comprehensively at our boundaries in 30 years. The last time, since we last looked comprehensively countywide, we've added 70,000 students in 60 schools. And you're a business major. Is, is that how you'd run a business? Make a decision and then never reassess how you're doing and how your, your, your business plan is impacting your customer base and how well you're serving them? I, I am so supportive of the boundary analysis because it's giving us objective, comprehensive, countywide data derived by experts with no stake in the outcome, no dog in the fight. And that, I mean, I think, I would hope anybody would agree the best place to start making decisions is from a very solid base of evidence. And I think if you look at our school system, we are, as a system, we are not over capacity. So a lot of our challenges have come from capacity pressure, schools that are overcrowded, becoming overcrowded at a time when our capital budget was shrinking during the recession. So you, you say that we're not over c- capacitated. Right. If you look ele- at every level in our school system, elementary, middle and high, countywide, the number of seats in the school that we have at that level and the number of students we have enrolled is about the same. However, school to school, we have some schools that are at 200% capacity. We have some schools that are at 63% capacity. We have 400 portables. We send $6 million a year on them. Students, we have... Safety concerns with portables. Yes, indeed. Big deal. I mean, that's especially with the number of school shootings, they're more vulnerable to someone breaking into a portable classroom and, uh, you know, enacting something awful. Yes. And I think, and many activists for several years now have been raising, have been looking at some of these issues and saying, MC, first of all, if, if our dollars are limited, why aren't we looking at non-CIP solutions to our capital problems? And so if you've got school A that's over capacity and schools B and C that may not be in the same cluster, and so for folks who aren't as big a dorks as we are about schools. (laughs) You know, a cluster is a high school and all the schools that feed into it. So we have 25 clusters. So if you've got a school A that's over capacity and schools B and C that are level alike schools, so they're both elementary schools or middle schools that are near and under capacity, maybe not in the same cluster. Why aren't we looking at shifting some of those boundaries and having students that are entering that level, you know, go to the less to the schools that have space. Why aren't we just looking at that? It seems like it's common sense. And so this, I think, is one of the things that can come from the boundary analysis is helping us see very clearly where those opportunities are. Lynn, in your opinion, why do you believe people are, parents and other people in our community have objected so strongly to the boundary analysis, given that it, as you said, it should produce objective facts, objective data. And has that, has that transformed those, I guess, the objections to the boundary now, has that transformed into any misinformation in your opinion? I think that there's been a lot of mis and disinformation. And I think that has led to some of the objections. Do you say the word boundary and all of a sudden it became like a dog whistle and 
um, an award that was something that we talked about routinely in MCCPTA for years. You know, look at school boundaries, look at that, all of a sudden became this incredibly fraught term. And I think most people that I talk to understand the need for an objective, comprehensive look at where we are. I think some of the uh, some of the noise that's come out of the whole discussion of boundaries over the past year um, is you know people don't like change and if they're they hear boundary change and they think what does that mean for me and my students and where we're going to go to school and any you know and when you're in the process of data collection, if you're going to be honest, you have to say, I don't know, because we're not done yet. We're just gathering the information. Well, and I think that leads us into the discussion of if the boundary analysis comes back. We've heard the term busing over yeah. the last few months, and we've heard the we've heard the term busing in the very first presidential debate of the, the Democrats. Yeah. They, they talked about that. So... Len, I think parents want to know about this concept of busing. Is that something that could happen? Is there something, would would the so-called neighborhood schools then be disrupted? What What's your take on that? Well, I think that, you know, first of all, you know, we, we get the boundary analysis done. We see where our opportunities are to, to you know, relieve capacity challenges. And we um, make decisions about how to use our space and our dollars better. And we, as far as busing, I mean, first of all, of course, you know, two-thirds of our students ride a bus to school every day. That's anyway. right. And a huge percentage of our students don't go to the cl- school closest to them anyway. And as I said in a conversation with somebody not long ago, every student can't go to the nearest school to them. Otherwise, we'd have exactly the situation we have now massively overcrowded schools elementary schools with 10 portables no play space so we i mean every student can't go to the we as a county i think we've not developed particularly well in projecting growth and we have an adequate public facilities ordinance clearly well um, that hasn't on growth certainly we are maryland's most populated county there's over a million and one people in Montgomery County alone, which is, I believe, bigger than the entire state of what, uh, as far as population-wise, Montana, Wyoming. We might be bigger than six or seven states uh, in terms of population. But parents are concerned, and I've seen this expressed routinely, that parents are concerned that they move into a neighborhood, they move into a neighborhood specifically to, they buy a house, and they want their kids to go to a specific school. And they see the the boundary analysis analysis could interrupt that that concept so is is that a plausible outcome that in the future that where students where parents move into a school district they move in specifically to go to a school a particular school cluster so to speak and then then they're they're disrupted that they their their kids are then going to another district and i'm sure you can understand that that concerns many parents. Yeah. Well, I have to say, I mean, I think it is possible that I think the thing that we as a school, first of all, I think the whole busing across county narrative is 
irresponsible. I haven't seen anybody say anywhere. As far as the rhetoric or yeah, the discussion? I've never seen anybody say, we're going to bus kids all the way across the county. And I've heard people throwing around words around diversity and inclusion and don't, you know, tokenism and that kind of thing. And first of all, we can't afford that kind of busing. Second of all, we need to decrease the number of bus miles that we drive. We need to decrease the size of our bus fleet. Montgomery County Public Schools is the largest bus fleet in the state of Maryland. Mm-hmm. We spend $2.7 million a year on fuel. Really, we need to start making opportunities more accessible and and thinking around how students can get, how they can get to great opportunities and where those opportunities are so we can decrease miles. And I think, so boundaries may shift, but I think if, if you want to call it, in, in what I would say a neighborhood school is, is a school where the neighborhood is all going to the same place. And... I think that's a model that I don't see changing because the one thing that we don't want are ridiculous gerrymandered boundaries. These <laughs> islands, you've seen them. Sure. And, you know, people look at things and say, why does, why do they go over here? Yeah. And, you know, if, you know, taking one big look at one time to say, well, how can we draw boundaries that, that ease our capacity stress? work with where we're growing and our plans for growth with through subdivision staging policy and and then you know your your neighborhood is going to the same school and we you know there are ways I, and so i think some people will not be would not be in the you know assignment area that they currently are um but again i don't I mean I think it that's just common sense it has to happen um, because where we are now is just so unworkable and puts so many stresses and I don't think anybody wants their kid in a portable classroom no and the for for anyone listening the analysis hasn't been come hasn't been returned yet no. and we're we're waiting on that <laughs> and so I think that once that is returned then we'll go from there Yep. And we'll look at the information that was reported and hopefully make strategic decisions based on that information. Yeah, and I will say one of the things that I'm really disappointed in throughout the analysis is the backtracking or the there was a brouhaha that came out a couple months ago that was WXY consultants that are doing mm-hmm. the analysis. Were they going to make recommendations? Yeah. And in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, my gosh. Please make recommendations. You're the experts. MCPS. Are they are they worried about not making the recommendations? They're not making them. Apparently, oh. that was there are big communities of folks that were took great offense to the thought that WXI would make recommendations at the end of the study in the analysis. And my thinking is MCPS. I think kind of has a history of doing things it's not very good at, and because it doesn't mm. necessarily have the expertise, and one of the advantages if you're going to hire an outside consultant to do like when we did the choice meta study hmm, i remember that they did this massive comprehensive countywide study and then they made recommendations and you know we adopted some we rejected some we adapted others but that's the beauty of recommendations coming from an expert one of the things you can do with them is ignore them but at least you're getting the benefit of that expertise mm-hmm. and i really do think that mcps could use that expertise because we don't have it in-house we just don't um but i so i i mean i think that's where we are i i hope one of the things that i hope comes out of this is and one of the things that 
you know, I'll pat MCC PTA a little bit on the back here. One of the things that we've been kind of pushing for was that we look very intently as a system at making excellent opportunities truly accessible to students. Mm -hmm. If you look at something great like the the Global Ecology Program at Poolsville, the system can say this is available to any high school student in Montgomery County that wants to put their name in the hopper to come here. It wasn't available to my son. I couldn't get my son to and from Poolsville every day. And it's a great opportunity is not a great opportunity if a kid can't get there. So why aren't we looking at look at the gigantic 504 square mile county of Montgomery <laughs> at a minimum when you're talking about opportunities for students like the five on a dice you know at least each great opportunity available at least in that sort of configuration so that no matter where a kid lives in the county they have the opportunity the true opportunity to get there looking at now that we have kids ride free and this is the one thing that wxy is intentionally doing in their analysis looking at public transit as a resource to help our students access really great programming that seems to make sense uh with you tapping into the county resources as well the bus the bus system um and yeah it can and we know that as as a parent myself, the, and our, our our students do not ride the bus, but we know that it, it can be a challenge of getting our kids to and from. And my wife and I, just like thousands of other parents, have had to make sacrifices to go. And, and that's what parents do to to go and pick your kids up at a certain time. And and it's uh you know if there are other options out there, I think we would tap into that. Yeah, and I say I think the ride on data right now is showing that. Since Kids Ride Free became effective on July 1st, ridership among students in Montgomery County has increased almost 60%. So students are using that resource now. And, I, I mean, my grand vision would be that with the adoption of Kids Ride Free, better placement of programming across the county, we are able to have more students who can walk to school. We have some challenges when we look at the configuration around some schools as to whether that's safe. Right, so we're, especially with pedestrian safety. Yes, and so that is ongoing areas of work. But more kids who can walk or bike or scoot or whatever. And then more kids who can use public transit to get to their programs or their opportunities or their internships. Reduce the size of the bus fleet. That as a resource could possibly filter back into enriching our county transit which is a benefit not only to students, teachers, staff, people that work in our school system, but county as a whole. So there may be a little bit of a win-win if we can kind of shift some of those resources around. You know, sticking on the topic of riding school buses, Lynn, what is a reasonable amount of time to expect an elementary school student or any student really to sit on a bus? And what, what can we do to limit that? Because we want our kids to participate and extracurricular activities. We want them to be able to get home and do their homework or play sports and participate in athletics and um, be involved as much as possible because, of course, that's a well-rounding academic yeah. experience. What, but parents I know are concerned about how often their students are actually riding the school bus. What, what do you think on that topic? You know, I think it, it's trickier in some areas of the county than others. Um, oh, yeah, because, of course, in Silver Spring, where you're from, there, it, it's it's... It's uh, it's a 
urban area. There's a hundred ways to get anywhere. Exactly. And up in Clarksburg, there's one road in and one road out. Yeah, exactly. And so if, you know, you just, and I I was talking to somebody the other day, they were talking about um, how, you know, just the question you just asked, how long should a kid be on a bus? What, What are the distances? And I think it's it's kind of a it's a different calculation depending on where you are in the county. Um, distance and transit time aren't don't equate in in lots of parts of the county. That's right. And so and <laughs> yes, because my my wife can explain that when uh, going from Gaithersburg to Bethesda every morning, plus dropping off kids and we we switch up. It takes an hour to get there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you know, and some of that we are we are simply. As a county, trapped in some ways. I mean, we have ag reserve land, so that's you can't go there. And we have, um, and because of that, you know, we've got some schools with great programs like Poolsville mm-hmm. that are a ways out there. Um, we t- try to attract students to those programs to increase, you know, the the enrollment in the school, so we can keep, you know. To an extent, we know in our school system that you have to have a certain critical mass to offer a great opportunity or a great course or something like that. We, you know, can't live teach a class for three. You know, we have to have a critical mass, looking at creative ways that we can make some opportunities available. I have really interesting conversations with some folks lately about, again, being a system, how we can um, use technology to um, provide really good instruction on unique niche courses to groups of students in different schools through simulcasts and things like that um, so that we don't have to have a a live teacher in a building. Um, But I think, so when you get back to your question about bus times and things, I don't have a good answer for you, and I'm going to be completely honest. And I think um, in some some areas of our county, because they're really, the ways to get from A to B are extremely limited, it, it's always going to be what it is. We're going in some of those areas building new roads and things. I think won't happen. You know, we have to be looking at our up in the Clarksburg area, for instance. We're already looking at new elementary schools. That's where some of our most overcrowded elementary schools yeah. are, because of the way the the housing is developing up there and continues to develop. I don't know if you've been up in that area. Oh lately, yeah, it's it's growing precipitously. And you're thinking if we have an adequate public facilities ordinance in mm-hmm. which every four years we're looking at how well our infrastructure is matching our growth, why if we have the most overcrowded elementary schools in the county do we still have all these housing developments going in? There's a lot and that's concern among parents. I think that's a, a, a concern countywide that that's an issue. I want to just switch topics and I want to talk to you about some of something that I think many parents are concerned about, and that's the numerous instances of MCPS employees who've been arrested for or convicted for sexual assault and sexual misconduct. And the issue is one of the most serious problems facing MCPS at the moment. And some parents feel that Superintendent Jack Smith is not adequately addressing the problems or not communicating the information correctly. How would you address this imperative issue as a Board of Education member? You talked about fostering transparency, but most importantly, what can we do to keep kids safe from predators, hiring predators in our school system? Yeah, I mean, that's a hard question. And I, you know, I've I've sat on the task force several years ago um, that re- 
wrote the child protection um, policies for MCPS employees mm-hmm. and resulted in the new um, ongo- the new MOU with the state's attorney's office and law enforcement and uh, the new training modules that are rolling out and are mandated every every year. They're better than they used to be, by the yeah. way. Um, and I think, you know, talking to people in the school system, it's, you know, we background check everybody. I'm not sure how you, I mean, so we, we criminally background check everybody. Now with the legislation that came through the um, General Assembly last year, HB 487, I think, might be wrong about that, that in, required not only the criminal background checking that we were already doing, but also that the, a full investigation of all employment history requiring all prior employer, employers to be contacted and to respond back before a, a new hire can proceed through our HR system. Law of unintended consequences. Mm. So it's backlogged a lot of the things that we really want to be bringing in, like psychologists. Right. Um, I have a friend who um, MCPS desperately wanted to hire to help deliver some of their um, crisis response, restorative justice, um, trauma-informed practices training because she'd been an international aid worker hmm. for, you know, that's her career of child protection. How, you know, some of the, I mean, that it process took nine months. And, you know, and even then, I don't, I don't know how you can fully, fully screen everything. Um, however, one of the things I think the system does need to do better, I, I do think we need to renegotiate the MOU with law enforcement because... More, perhaps more... Uh, school resource officers in high schools. Well, I'm I know thinking, that all twenty-five have a school resource officer. Yeah, I believe that's correct. And and I don't know. If, I, are they shared with middle schools in the same cluster? Do they bounce back and forth? I I think it depends on the school. I know um, Safe to Learn mandated expansion of SROs into middle schools. But what I I mean, as far as the MOU negotiation, I'm thinking of it goes to what you were saying about transparency and response. Um, too often, and it's so difficult. Things bad things happen. Thinking about the Damascus locker room rapes. Yeah, it's a big a big deal that has upended the the entire community. Absolutely, and you know. Did the, did let me ask you? And I'm sorry to interrupt, but did MCPS? Do you believe that they handled that situation correctly? I think that, and this is a conversation that we had very frankly with them as this was evolving, and MCCPTA was trying to circle the wagons to support the community and get the school system to support the community and communicate clearly. Too much of that time was spent with MCPS saying, our MOU with law enforcement prohibits us from sharing X, Y, and Z pieces of information. Nobody wants to halt a good investigation when something like that happens. We we want those to be thoroughly investigated. However, the way we support students through that process, the the way that we support the community through that process, we should have been reaching out into that community the next day with restorative practices and people really trained in how to support a community in crisis. We didn't really have that. Well-intentioned people going out to the schools, counselors and things like that, but the community was telling us, 
our students and our staff don't know the people. We don't have any doubt that these are well-intentioned, fine people, but we don't know them. And our students aren't really inclined at this point of tra trauma to go to somebody they don't know to seek support, to talk things through. And, you know, MCPS didn't really have a crisis response team that's trained to go in and support a community in a circumstance like that, and we need those. And I think that MOU can be renegotiated in a way that lets MCPS, we're not going to disclose critical law enforcement information. Nobody wants that. Nobody's asking for that. But for the ability to go forward into the community and timely communicate everything that we can clearly and with a with a restorative peace built in, with a peace that's always there to help the community process and heal and 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 move forward. And I think when a school community has been through something like that, there's it's a new normal. You never go back yeah. to the way things were. But as a system, I think we can do far. We need to do far better at how we are prepared to support our communities in crisis. Yeah. I think those resources exist. We have that expertise in our community. We need to tap into it, and we need to renegotiate that MOU in a way that makes MCPS comfortable sharing not sensitive information, but factual information that they can in real time moving forward so the rumor mill doesn't start and you know how quick that is it, it does and especially with the pro proliferation of social media it, it spreads quickly Lynn we spoke briefly about Superintendent Jack Smith I mentioned him how would you grade his performance what can what has he done well what can he do better in in your opinion and what are your thoughts on his recent salary increase I think that Dr. Smith, he, his commitment to equity in our system is sincere, sincere and real and deep, and I so and his commitment to serving every student well is real and sincere and deep. I think some of our challenges have come from, again, you're going to hear me say these words so much, transparency and consistency, and the. Community engagement, a penchant among some offices, departments, and divisions in the school system to view community engagement as beginning at the announcement of a decision. That's that's not when community engagement should begin. And I think um, there have been a couple, at least, major um, system decisions made quite behind closed doors. And I'm thinking, you know, last July 9th, um, the announcement of uh, Dr. McKnight's hiring as a deputy superintendent. I don't think, you know, nothing wrong with having somebody at that level in our system who's focused on equity and, and looking at all the work that we're doing through that lens. But um, I think it, I, I, I don't know why that decision and the thinking around it and that led to it was um, so embargoed. I don't I don't think that the superintendent needs to have, make every decision by committee. However, I think engaging the key community the key groups that are part and parcel of who we are as a system and why we are as a system and what we do as business every day, students, parents, teachers, staff, engaging them at least in the 
Here's what I'm thinking. Here's why I'm thinking it. These are my plans. Instead of just coming forward with a, this is done. I think that would build a better sense in our schools, in, our, in, in the, the soup to nut transparency in all 208 of our school communities of understanding more why we're doing what we're doing as a system. And the same thing with the recent announcement of the reorganization in central office, kind of done the same way. And it, and I'll say this here to you because I've said it to many in the system for the past several years. When you engage, you need to do that in a way that is truly meaningful. When a school is going to get a new principal and you are convening a stakeholder group to talk about the characteristics of a leader that that's system that the school community values. You don't give 48 hours notice and hold the meeting at 4 o'clock in the afternoon when most <laughs> parents can't get there. After the announcement of the central office reorganization, there was an email that went out to staff. I'm staff. And it said, I'm paraphrasing, that the school system would like to get you know, comments and thoughts from faculty and staff, student, you know, teachers and staff about the proposed reorganization and gave less than 24 hours notice for three meetings that were going to be held during the school day. That's frustrating. And to me, what that looks like is not really wanting that input and engagement, which I think is a huge mistake because every one of our groups has wisdom and experiential knowledge of our system that would enrich all of our decisions. And embracing that and viewing all of those in those groups as valuable partners instead of somebody to tolerate in the process. I mean, I, I, I think it's a huge missed opportunity. It's a huge missed resource. And I think it's it's leads to a lack of understanding and a lack of trust. Uh, just to touch back briefly, Lynn, do you, he, Dr. Smith's salary was increased and I read at, I think it was $25,000 and there was some negotiations in his contract, a car. Is this is is this a smart investment for the school system? You know, I, I have to say, I wish I had done more research as to what is considered what is a commensurate salary for mm -hmm. a superintendent? And you know, we're the largest school system in the state, and I believe yep. we're what number fourteen or fifteen in the country? Thirteen. Thirteen. Okay. Thirteen. So if we we went. Yeah. We, we jumped over Wake with our enrollment increase this year. I don't think that they're they're officially categorizing it that way because usually we do our our, our tallying at the end of a school year. Mm -hmm. But with our enrollment at one hundred sixty six thousand two hundred thirty three or so, that's we jumped over Wake, so mm -hmm. now we're thirteenth. Wow! But um, and I don't know what a commensurate salary is, but I will say that I think that's a lot. It's a lot of money. A lot of money. Um, it's a hard job. I wouldn't want that job. I wouldn't want that job either. <laughs> um, but I do think we are sort of top-heavy on salaries in, in MCPS. Administratively. Administratively, definitely. Um, and some, and I look at some of those big salaries and think, you know, I think our system would be served. If you, for instance, if you look at the Board of Education office, there are several very large salaries in positions in that office. And I have to w think that 
the board would be better served by, you know, having four independent analysts in that, you know, taking up, you know, two of those salaries. Well, you're speaking my language because as the technocrat that I think I have inherently am and people get frustrated with me because I often talk about how government would be better run by having as much detailed policy analysis through independent agencies. Uh, I, I approach government much differently than most people, more of a technocratic approach. But um, yeah, that's, that's such an interesting concept. And if you replace the the large cost of the overhead yeah. and you have people making decisions by studying it, analyzing it, measuring it, because of course we can't move forward or backwards without understanding what the data means. Right. And I am I am an, I am a data-driven evidence-based decision maker. I don't believe in making any and I'm sure that goes back to my health background. Um and well, my law background. Um Sure. And I'm not an emotional decision maker. I want the facts. And so I think having independent analysts so that as as it is now when the board asks a question or wants clarification they they have to go to the school system to provide them that information if the board had its own independent analysts and an independent budget person to analyze whatever the board viewed as an important thing for them to understand better and more deeply that's a check and a balance and when you have checks and balances then your transparency is better, and and again, we're getting back to you're your building more trust. When when the Board of Education has the power to be more truly independent, and I also think we need, as a system, and this kind of goes back to Senator Kramer has, has a bill in, and MCCPTA actually prioritizes. Well, that's Senator Ben Kramer from District 19. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, for an IG, and I think one, I, I think that's a good idea. Um, again, independent in independent analysis is never a bad thing I don't think and but I think too one of the things our school system needs is a true ombudsman um, we've had people with that title that haven't really filled that role but I think having a true ombudsman whose only job was to interface with the communities and to help the communities resolve issues conflicts um, in a in a way that was, independent and was not beholden to any outcome or any side I think having a true ombudsman would it would also be an invaluable service to our school communities but it also would be an invaluable service to the school system in showing look we are a student first system and we want to be able to serve our students well and that includes when things aren't working well, here's we, 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 we truly want to get to the bottom of things and not just devolve to the principal's always right or, you know, whatever. Um, you know, have more independence in that, I, I think, would be a benefit. Len, we've been going at this for an hour <laughs> and over an hour, and I think we could go for another hour. But I know that in podcast world, people tend to drop off, and that's okay. So I want you to... Plug your website, and uh, I know that there's plenty of upcoming forums yeah. that you can you can go to. I believe Bethesda Beat put out a list, and there's seven or eight on that list. There's there's one coming up on March 10th, I believe. Tuesday, we're in Poolsville. Mm-hmm. Yep. And your website? Lynn4students.org, and that's Lynn, L-Y-N-N-E, the number four, 
www.ohiostudents.org. And I checked out your website today, and you have lots of drop-down menus. It's it's very detailed. You have a blog where you talk about your issues, and I encourage people to who want to learn more about Lynn to visit her website. And it, it's helpful because I know that when you look at these issues and try to understand them because Board of Education Policy, MCPS, is a complex operating entity. And for people who are making the executive decisions on fiscal issues, on personnel issues, having that information to understand who you are and what you're about is vitally important. And the whole purpose of doing this podcast is to give candidates the opportunity to speak one-on-one without the constraints of a timer. And we know that forums can be frustrating. I've attended many, far too many in my lifetime. But I know that the what I'm hoping to accomplish is to introduce you to people who may otherwise not know you, as for all the candidates, and to to hopefully people tune in. And this is a an active Montgomery County is an, an active bunch down here. When I grew up in Washington County, uh, to a lesser extent, but look, parents, it's, it's, this is what it's all about: is yeah. coming together as a community, having that information, and as you said, transparency, inconsistency, vitally important. Len, um, for the first time, it was really a pleasure to have you. I appreciate you coming out, especially on a Saturday after you've been busy and meeting voters all day. You've spent the evening at our home in Gaithersburg. I wish you the best of luck ahead. The primary is April 28th. And one last question, who who gets through? What, what, what happens there? So I believe there's, what, 10 candidates for at large? 13. 13, candidates okay. Candidates in you know, primary it narrows the field to two. And for each seat, so the District 4 seat is also on the primary ballot because there are three yes. candidates there. Yes. The District 2 seat is not because there are only two candidates, so that will just move on to the general. So for each of those two, the at-large seat for which there are 13 candidates and the District 14 seat for which there are three, the primary narrows the field for each of those to two. Okay. And then those... Bless you. Go forward into the <laughs> general election in November. So of those two, one are one is picked. One is chosen by voters. The two who get through the, the primary. Yep. It, okay. Everybody goes, they'll get their primary ballot. They'll mm-hmm. check off whichever, you know, they'll check off a name. The top two vote getters will move through to the general. I, I, and I want to mention to everyone who is listening that the the election, the primary election is open to everybody. It's a nonpartisan ballot, and being the registered unaffiliated that I am in Maryland, I can vote for the Board of Education. And nothing else. And nothing else, but... <laughs> judges. And, and judges. Yeah. And I, I, I would probably, they would probably think I'm crazy if I said, all right, judge so-and-so, come on over to my house and have an interview. So that's why we're doing the, the Montgomery County Public Schools, the Board of Education race. Lynn, it was a sincere pleasure having you tonight. Thanks for making time for us, and all the best to you. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Maryland's 2020 primary election is Tuesday, April the 28th. Early voting begins Thursday, April 16th, and concludes on Thursday, April 23rd. Be sure to check out a minor detail podcast on iTunes, iHeartRadio, CastBox, Overcast, or wherever you listen to your podcast. A minor detail podcast is on the web at aminordetailpodcast.com. For Maryland political news, please visit aminordetail.com. I'm Ryan Miner. Thanks for listening.